Hey, Kitty Boy here. You're about to listen to another great episode of Freely Filtered in just a moment. But first, I want to ask everyone to take a moment and think about what NFJC does for the nephrology community. Think about the Twitter chats, the visual abstracts, the tutorials, the parties at Kidney Week, the mentorship, the internship, the podcast. All of this is produced by a cohort of dedicated and talented nephrologists from around the world, and none of us gets paid for any of this. All of this is done with very few resources, but not no resources. And to fund NFJC, we ask our users to support us. We are a registered nonprofit and donations are tax deductible in the US. Just about every week, we get offers from Pharma to support NFJC. They want to get in our ear to get in your ear. We say no. We feel that it is important for someone to hold the line and we do that. But in order to hold that line, we need your support. Please consider making a donation to NFJC. Go to nefjc.com to donate. Thanks. I'm sorry. Can you can you talk to me like I'm five years old? What the, what are you talking about? I don't understand at all what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is an online site for post-publication peer review that provides summaries, visual abstracts, interactive chats, newsletters, and podcasts on the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, this isn't the place to find answers. We suggest ringing up ChatGPT or your doctor rather than taking the advice from some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast most definitely will discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. I have no relevant COI. Tonight, we have Josh Waitsman. Hi there, Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. I tweet at Jay Waits. Um, conflict of interest-wise, I work in the Martin Pollock Laboratory, which receives funding from Vertex, but my work personally is not funded by Vertex, the company that underwrote the cost of doing the work that's presented in this paper. I receive NIH funds specifically to study APOL1, but I don't think there's a conflict of the work presented here and the APOL1 work that I work on. Excellent. Jenny. Hi, my name is Jenny Lin. I am a physician scientist and adult nephrologist at Northwestern University. I do not have any relevant COIs, but I do receive NIH funding to study APOL1 in macrophages. Excellent. We have two special guests. First, we have AC. AC, introduce yourself. Hi, so I'm AC Gomez. I am a MedPeds Nephrology Fellow up in Boston at uh, Brigham and Boston Children's. I tweet at MedPeds Kidneys, and uh, I have no specific conflicts of interest, although my research training grant is in part to study APOL1-related kidney disease. 
Hold on, you're a med peds nephrologist. How, how yeah. long does it take? How long is that fellowship? <laughs> well, it's so it's four years of fellowship, and then if I add on transplant, it's going to be five. Oh, wow. oh, well, stop! You're hurting my ears. Stop the transplant. So, it's four, <laughs> so wait. So just to become a pediatric nephrologist is three years. Yes. And if you add just one additional year onto that, they'll let you become an internal medicine you, nephrologist ex- too? Exactly. It's a great deal. And then, you know, you do four years of uh, med peds residency. And so eventually I'll be at nine years. And I hear if you do 10 years, then you get your loans for free. So it's the perfect plan. <laughs> Is that really true? <laughs> 10 years of training gets your loans for free? Or did you just make Pub- that up? Public service loan forgiveness. Public service loan forgiveness. Good luck with that. I think that should be, that's a good, that sounds like a decent strategy. And you... <laughs> So, so it's, it's funny. If you look at it from the internist, it's a, it's a bad deal. It's two years to become nephro- uh, an adult nephrologist. You have to do into double that to get pediatrics. But if you go from the pediatrics way, it's only an additional year. It sounds much better. Okay. Yeah, exactly. The other special guest is uh, uh, Jensen Hall. Uh, Jensen, introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Jensen Hall from uh, Duke University. I am uh, a physician scientist focused on the genetics of familial nephrotic syndrome. So this is a great discussion to be having. And uh, I'm also Vice Chief of Diversity and Equity and Inclusion for the division. So again, another set of responsibilities around at-risk populations and people with uh, issues of concern. I am on Twitter at JensenHallMD and really happy to be here. It's a great Excellent. Oh, welcome. We're excited. We're excited to have you. So tonight we're going to be talking about the New England Journal of Medicine article from March 16th, Inaxaplin. Is that how you pronounce it? Inaxaplin? Inaxaplin for proteinuric kidney diseases in persons with two APL1 variants. And this is a very different study than we normally cover in NEFJC. It is a phase two trial. I'm not sure if we've ever done a phase two trial. If you read the methods, it splits both basic science and clinical medicine. Only 16 patients were enrolled in the trial. This is very tiny. And the reason we're so excited about this is there has been bright lights on this whole idea of looking at genetic causes for nephrotic syndrome. Uh, I remember when this first came to light with uh, back in the early mid late aughts uh, with MYH9, which was a purported a genetic cause here. It ended up being a misfire. And then we uh, in 2010, uh, they identified the correct gene, this APOL1, and we've been pursuing that from the very basic science. So what does this APOL1 do? And how can we treat it? And this is kind of our first breakthrough. Am I right? This is our first breakthrough and how we can actually treat this disease. Yeah. Uh, Jenny, you've been studying this. You have something prepared about the science here? Sure. Just kind of a general overview and knowing that we also hopefully have some students and trainees listening as well, giving an overview of APOL1 mediated kidney disease. Just keep telling yourself also- that. Many students, many <laughs> students listening tonight. Absolutely. Hey. <laughs> Yes, that is the hope. And you know, you know, I do work with Susan Quaggan and she keeps saying that the future is bright in nephrology. And I think you know, she might have a crystal ball and might be attracting in more students. So I'm gonna go with that. <laughs> but regardless, also patients could be listening as well. And so just wanting to give an overview of APOL1 kidney disease, or you know, you may hear it referred to as APOL1 nephropathy. So um, as Joel mentioned in 2010, uh, we had this major genetic breakthrough identifying APOL1 as a causal gene in proteinuric kidney disease, more specifically non-diabetic proteinuric kidney disease in patients of recent West African ancestry. And so Josh's mentor, Martin Pollack, and his group had discovered uh, coding variants that are common 
And when I say common, I mean that they are expressed in more than 1% of the population, um, and they have minor allele frequencies of 23 and 13% respectively, and are called G1 and G2. And they became common among individuals of West African ancestry due to a survival advantage they provide against African sleeping sickness. And so uh, through all of that, what we've been trying to figure out in the kidney science community is possible mechanisms for how they are causal in the disease. What is the link between uh, the variants survival against African trypanosomiasis and the increased risk of kidney disease if you have two copies of a high-risk variant. So you're either having G1, G1 genotype, G2, G2, or a combination of G1 and G2. So uh, when you have this high-risk genotype, you are at increased risk of developing proteinuric kidney disease, more specifically uh, in what is described as focal segmental glomerular sclerosis, or FSGS, HIV-associated nephropathy, more recently COVAN, or COVID-associated nephropathy, and in some cases, lupus as well. So Josh, like what has been the conversation, what has the conversation been like over on your side of the street? Yeah, sure. Uh, and it's funny, Joel, going back to the MYH9 story, I feel like my training career has paralleled this story in a really interesting way because my PhD background was in motor proteins, uh, looking at kinesin motors, which are relatives of myosin motors. And when I started thinking about specialty, I'm like thinking that, oh, there's this myosin motor that seems really important in kidney disease. And I have all this motor protein background. Maybe there's a good place for me doing this. And Susan Quaggan helped me feel like there was a place in nephrology for me. And so I started down that pathway. And then folks like David Friedman and, and Martin Pollack at Beth Israel really helped us clear up this understanding of where these coding variants are, not in this myosin gene, but actually in the APOL1 gene. And really the, the last 10 years in the Pollock and Friedman labs have been devoted to trying to understand the mechanisms by which these two gene variants drive kidney disease. And I think despite a lot of important basic investigative work, we still have big questions about how these gene variants drive disease. We know that APOL1 is a circulating protein that protects people against trypanosomiasis, but it seems like it's a different pool of APOL1, a kidney intrinsic pool, that plays the biggest role in the development of APOL1-associated kidney diseases. So why this trypanosome defense protein is getting expressed in the kidney and podocytes is not still totally clear to us. We have questions about what that variant protein is doing. I think a lot of people believe in a proteins forming a ion channel pore, which we'll talk about more today. But I think that one mechanism doesn't rule out other important potential mechanisms by which these variants might be causing injury to podocytes as well. And then a large part of the, the work in the Pollock group has really been devoted to developing mouse models of APOL1-associated kidney disease. And because APOL1 is a primate-only gene, it really takes a lot of work to make a mouse that expresses a primate-only gene and develops a kidney disease that looks anything like APOL1-associated kidney disease. Hey, before we go deeper into the, the molecular basis. Uh, Jenny, you said the prevalence of this gene of G1 was what, 26% or something like that? Is that what, what were the numbers there? Do you mind the G1 and the G2 prevalence? 
yeah, in terms of having one allele, 23%. Of either of those alleles or of just of the G1? G1. And then G2 is 13%. I think the thing that's really important about those big numbers is that when we think about genetic kidney disease, often there are rare gene variants that have big effects or common gene variants that have very small effects. And this is one of those weird cases where you have a pretty common gene variant that seems to have a really big effect on the risk of developing kidney disease in, in people of recent West African origin. So it's 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 important to, to, to remember in, in, in a way to punctuate Josh's point. These variants were identified in a GWAS study, which is a, an association study. And so causality wasn't established from the beginning, but the effect was so strong that uh, it made a real argument for uh, some associated role or effect pathogenic. So um, the, the challenge has been modeling this disease. And so once the connection to trypanosomal infection was uh, identified, most of the focus, uh, I guess, in the early, early stages was on figuring out what the role of the protein was in crippling the, um, the defenses of the trypanosome, hoping that indirectly you would have some sort of understanding about what these same molecules might do to cells in the kidney. And one of the earliest findings that I just thought was fantastic was the notion of forming pores that could actually um, violate the membrane integrity and result in leakage or some, all sorts of other intracellular cascades that lead to cellular injury and ultimately death. The notion that this, these variants were so widely distributed in the population made it really compelling because it could explain a lot of the risk that was associated with African-Americans, people who were uh, more likely than not going to have these, these particular variants uh, expressed, but it didn't explain everything. And so there had to be, again, some additional contributor. And that's really where the chase has gone over this length of time, in addition to trying to identify what the actual functional role of the, the protein is. And there really have been a lot of insights into the, the molecular contribution to cellular injury for, for APOL1 and the, the two uh, gene variants. But as Jenny said, the damage comes when you have individuals that express both. And so that speaks to uh, its performance almost as an autosomal recessive gene instigator when so you have so, uh, how, how one if bad you copy. Have two, Sorry. If you have two risk copies, mm -hmm. what is the risk? What's the risk if you have two copies? So you're, you're, you have the genetic predisposition... 50%, 25%, 10%, 1%, what, what, what? Yeah, I think it, it really depends also on the specific clinical phenotype you're inquiring about. So let's talk about the, that, that hypertensive nephrosclerosis that seems to be, or one of the diseases that seems to be highly associated with this disease. I think of those risks primarily as like risk multipliers. So compared to a background rate of FSGS or hypertension-associated kidney disease. People who carry two high-risk gene variants have a risk that's about 10 times higher than people who carry one copy of a high-risk variant or no copies of a high-risk variant. If you think about other types of kidney diseases along this spectrum, particularly HIV-associated kidney disease, that risk multiplier is somewhere closer to 50 to 100 times in people who carry two risk variants as opposed to one or zero risk variants. So uh, let's rewind. Do we see high VAN in people with no risk variants? Is that still something that comes up? I thought this was... Uh, uh, is that a thing? We don't see much high VAN anymore because we have such effective antivirals. I think this explains a huge 
part of the high van burden. I, I never say never in medicine anymore, so I don't know that it explains every single case of high van, but I think it explains an awful lot. And, you know, you do see quite a few high van patients who do not have African ancestry. So mm-hmm. I would say there's also a population that this doesn't cover. It does. Okay. Yes, it's I've, not everybody. But I've seen like different studies quote like eight to 32 times increased risk, depending on which, re- you know, which study is being quoted and which cohorts being looked at. And are there populations with a higher prevalence? Is, is this gene higher prevalence in, in uh, Western Africa, even higher than what we see in the United States? I think they're still doing those studies actually to figure out on the continent, you know, what the burden of the genetic variance uh, in the population is. I don't know that. So the records of disease are not the same as in the United States. So you, there, you, I don't know that you're necessarily going to see large cohorts of people with biopsy data that you can then associate with a diagnosis and a, you know so it's it's not as clear but i think the data is actively being collected and i think there are probably some early estimates maybe the best description of it i've heard is from dr uh, opiemio labisi i think through his work with h3 africa they're trying to get a little bit of a sense for that maybe but uh, I, I think he's given a sense that the variants are prevalent there, but uh, maybe that their understanding of how much disease is associated is is still unclear. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Jen, Jess, do you have any other uh, things you want to talk about in terms of framing this study up? I think we hit on most of the things, um, including that there are multiple different hypotheses, but what this drug focuses on is the um, ion pore forming hypothesis. And I did try to look up more information on the mechanism of action and the pharmacology of enaxaplin, but didn't really come up with much. All we know is the small molecule and we can pull up the organic chemistry structure <laughs> on Google. Yeah, this is this is a molecule that still has a fair amount under wraps. Probably the most information we get about it is either from this paper or the patent filing that Vertex has on it. Um, and I think when we talk about methods here, we're going to see just about all the data we know about this molecule. Really? Okay. I, I, I think there's certainly more that the Vertex folks know. And I think it's really important for us to understand this mechanism and how this drug works before we start thinking about giving it to people, especially uh, a group of people who have a very good reason to historically mistrust new medicines. And so I think more mechanistic understanding and more drug understanding are, are still in the future for us. I think you can frame meaningfully how the drug might work if you think about really what the injury it's addressing is. So proteinuria usually follows podocyturia. That's obviously not something that we assess for in clinic, but the assumption would be that the injury to the podocytes creates leakage or potential for leakage in the filter. And what we assess late in the process is the loss of protein. So this drug and whatever effects it has is interrupting something about podocyte injury so that if the if the readout is a reduction in proteinuria, you are suspending the injury to the filter by, in some manner, protecting the podocyte. So even before Vertex made any direct claims about what the drug was doing, like they do in this paper, they would say things like it targets APOL1. And when they were looking at proteinuria as the indicator, my, my sense was that this was something that was either modifying the performance of the molecule and affecting the way that it does damage, or maybe even reducing the expression, which is another approach. But it's 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 at least helpful to see that this is the direction that they um, are, are, 
are sending us now. And this and this APOL, these these risk alleles are gain of function or increased expression, right? That's that's what they are for this protein. I think we think they're gain of function. I would not say that they're necessarily increased expression. Okay. The, that's a complicated question, but in, in mouse models, you can express whole boatloads of the G0 variant and not get any kidney disease. Gotcha. But you express the same amount of the G1 or the G2 variant and you get lots of kidney disease. Yeah, there has been some studies both in vitro and I think in vivo looking at some level of dose dependency. So meaning like amount of APOL1 also matters. Right. And having an absence of a G0 variant also matters. That if you have the G1 and a G0 around, something about the G0 seems to keep the G1 from or G2 from doing its bad thing. Interesting. Those are actually, I think, papers that are discoveries by the same investigator you mentioned earlier, OPME Olabisi. So he published a JSON paper, I guess, in 2021 or to demonstrating that the APOL1 variants have a dose-dependent injury effect. The model system there was uh, human embryonic kidney cells, and they led at least in part for this study. And then as far as Josser's comment about the uh, gain of function, it really is the, the performance of the molecule and what the molecule does versus its absolute expression. What you can see when you have viral-mediated injuries like COVID-associated nephropathy or hiving is that the effect is uh, amplified for APOL1 because those those cascades lead to an increase in expression. So it's both an increase in expression driven by sort of the viral-induced inflammatory pathway, and then it's the actual defective mechanisms of the protein itself. The two of those added together produce those really injurious effects in HIVAN and COVAN. AC, hit us up with some methods. What do we got? All right. Uh, so first things first, this is a phase 2A trial. So just as a reminder, because this is atypical for us to talk about these, this is looking more at do we think that this drug has efficacy uh, before we move on to kind of larger scale phase 3 trials looking at the therapeutic effect. So this is looking more at, you know, do we think this drug is efficacious? Should we move on? And how do we potentially design a larger scale trial to look at that therapeutic effect? So I think the first thing to talk about is actually the preclinical development of anaxaplin. And the reason that I think that it's important to talk about this is just since right now we really don't have any specific APOL1 therapies, this is potentially the first one that we're going to have. So in terms of preclinical development, before they even carried out this study, they generated what are called inducible cultured human embryonic kidney, or HEC, um, and these expressed the APOL1 either reference sequence, so that's known as G0, or the high-risk alleles, so G1 or G2. And those were under the control of a tetracycline promoter. And so we think, at least in part, the toxicity of G1 and G2 APOL1 variants are due to pore formation in the membranes, and this allows the flow of ions um, and triggers cell death pathways. Again, we don't know 100% that that is that uh, we don't know 100% that that is the cause of the cytotoxicity, or that that is the only mechanism. But we certainly think that that may be one of them. Um, so with these hex cells, what they looked at was the effect of anaxaplin on thallium ion influx, which they used basically as a surrogate marker for potassium ion influx, which is one of the things that we think may be, uh, again, the mechanism behind the cytotoxicity. And then they used a mouse model with two high-risk APOL1 alleles, and specifically the mouse model had two. So, what I'm saying, so now we're on to a second experiment. So the first one is this, it's just these hex cells, and then they mm-hmm. did an experiment on animals mouse. Yes. Yes. So the first one was just cells. Got it. 
we express these we express these things and then we measure the flow of thallium and that's supposed to measure the flow of potassium kind of prove and then seeing if you can block that with this drug that's the experiment exactly and these are cells that just express apol1 these are not podocyte cells these are just random cells that have yeah. been ge- engineered to gener- to express this the, the variety of apol1 right these are happy growing in cell culture cells that'll express whatever you want them to express and so they're engineered to express apol1 gene variants and the tetracycline allows you to titrate the dose. So you increase the amount of tetracycline that you give to the cells and you get more expression. So Do you okay. guys think it's a limitation that they didn't try this in a podocyte line? I think from like a, a real insider view, I think most people don't think podocyte cell lines are really good podocytes. So I think reasonable to see what it does in this cell culture model, like the hex cells. It's always nice to see something in, in in vitro podocytes, but I think going from hex cells to protein and then into mice is a pretty reasonable covering your bases. I know Jensen, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's a subject of debate. It just depends on on the user. I mean, I certainly understand the arguments about sort of the podocyte lines that are kind of out there in the world. They are not podocytes in the sense that they do not have the cytoskeletal arrangement, it's only 2D culture, all of those sort of limitations. But to be fair, we've come quite a distance with those models uh, providing us with pretty faithful information about signaling and you know disease mechanics and all of these different things that uh, kind of led us to this point. So not the perfect model, but still very useful. I think hex cells are just much easily, much more easily manipulated and maintained in culture. And so that just makes them, you know, if you're going to say everything is equal, why not use the one that gives you a little bit more utility? All right. So the next experiment was a mouse model experiment. So they had a mouse model with two high-risk APOL1 alleles, and specifically they had two G2 alleles. And then they injected these mice with interferon gamma, or they injected some of the mice with saline as a negative control. And then they prophylactically gave anaxoplin, or just a vehicle to the mice after the injection. And then they monitored the no, urinary. Wait, I thought it was. I thought that they were. They got the inexplicable before they got the interferon. Is that they the, did? Isn't that the they order? Did. So I, yeah, I think so we they, need, they, Yeah, I, they were. They reversed it when they gave the methods, but I think it's kind of cl- that that. that sh- the first thing is they gave the drug and then they gave, and then they induced the, and then they gave the um, interferon, which is supposed to trigger the disease apparently in these mice. Yes, they did. They gave it, they gave it prophylactically. So they gave, you're completely correct. So they gave the anexoplin first or a vehicle and then gave the interferon gamma or the saline. And then they monitored the urinary albumin to creatinine ratio every 24 hours for a total of 72 hours. And so those are kind of the two preclinical experiments that they did prior to proceeding with this phase two trial. And- I know we normally do methods and then results. Can I actually request that we take a break here and talk about the results of the preclinical stuff so folks aren't juggling all these hex cells and mice in their head, and then we can go straight on into the clinical stuff after that? It's a great suggestion. So uh, I just want to make sure. So AC and pediatrics, are you guys doing every 72-hour uh, PCRs? Is that is that kind of standard move? All the time. It's, it's super yeah. easy to get kids to do it. It's no yeah. problem at all. Yeah. So I... I try to I try to get daily PCRs in my patients also. Just you know, you know, we don't want to keep an eye on this disease. <laughs> so I, I think something about this mouse model is that so interferon is a really potent inducer of ApoL1 expression, and so these mice get a huge bolus of interferon, just like they're getting sick from anything else that induces interferon. They express tons of ApoL1, and they get really sick. And so these mice sometimes don't live past two weeks. 
beyond interferon treatment. And so I think one reason to think about every 24-hour urine protein checks is because you have a pretty limited window in which these mice are alive and you might see a difference. It was also interesting seeing that interferon is the inducer because we see so many viral illnesses kick off this ApoL1 mm -hmm. disease, right? Thinking of COVID, thinking about yeah. HIV. And that's the thought behind HIV-associated nephropathy and COVID nephropathy in, in ApoL1 is that those higher interferon states are what trigger the disease. And, and in fact, actually in people who were receiving interferon as part of like hepatitis treatment and had high risk ApoL1 gene variants, they also had a very high rate of FSGS and other glomerular disease. Do we see ApoL1 associated disease in lupus, another state with as high, I see Jensen yeah. shaking his head. Yep. And, and Jenny was alluding to that data too, yeah. that there's at least yeah. a threefold risk of lupus kidney disease in people with a higher, threefold risk increase in people with high risk ApoL1 genotypes compared to not. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. I think it's also interesting to think about, like you mentioned that kind of that interferon and how that's the mechanism behind a lot of these kind of like viral induced then kidney injury we see in people with high risk ApoL1 alleles and how rapidly that progresses. And the fact that they had to prophylactically give the anaxaplin. And I think that that kind of mechanism versus what may happen in the development of kind of like hypertensive nephropathy or end-stage kidney disease in the in the long term due to these high-risk ApoL1 variants is important when we'll get to the exclusion criteria of this study because I think they had some interesting exclusion criteria, but they make sense when you think about it mechanistically. So looking at the, the data, then AC had done a really nice job of telling us about what kinds of experiments the group was doing here. In panel A of figure one, they're looking at the the amount by which thallium movement into the hex cells is inhibited as they change the concentration of anaxaplin. And they show that in all of the genotypes, APOL1, G0, G1, and G2, the more anaxaplin you put on these cells, the less thallium gets into them. So this is not G1 or G2 specific targeted inhibition. This is APOL1 generally targeted inhibition by this anaxaplin molecule. Doesn't matter which gene you have, all of them get blocked by this drug. All of them get blocked by this at least drug. At least they're thallium influx. Correct. And since thallium looks a lot like potassium to most ion channels, folks often use thallium as a replacement for potassium in these assays. In panel B, they're comparing three different conditions with the same cell line. And I think this is the... Is this G2, guys? I forget which. Sorry, it's G1. Excuse me. So in, in panel B, we're looking at three sets of conditions for the APOL1 G1 expressing hex cells. And they show a control condition in which there is no tetracycline, so no APOL1 is being ex extra APOL1 is being expressed. They show a condition with tetracycline present, and they show lots of thallium influx, like a 30-fold increase in the rate of thallium influx. And then they show tetracycline being applied, so APOL1 being expressed, plus inaxaplin present. And they show reduction in the amount of thallium flux, probably to about three or four times baseline, as opposed to the 30 times baseline that they saw with the, without inaxaplin present. So that's showing that inaxaplin is specifically blocking the ion flux that is happening through these APOL1 expressed channels. In panel C, panel C is a, is a 
protein binding to small molecule kind of assay called a, a microscale therm- thermophoresis. They're, they're just basically trying to melt these proteins. And the more protein you bind, you change the shape of that melting curve. And they show that the, the anaxaplin molecule binds directly to those proteins. I don't really want to go too much more into that because then it gets to be really technical. Why is that? But why is that important? Why is that part of the experiment important? What's the importance of it binding to? Yeah, you know, I think the important part is that you could imagine ABLE1 expression being upstream of something that then leads to some ion flux that leads to kidney disease. But this shows you that that anaxaplin is directly binding to ABLE1 directly, uh, and then in, in panel B, directly affecting ion flux. It makes a really strong argument that it's ion flux mediated directly by ApoL1 that is the target of this new small molecule. But if it's doing it for all the genotypes, how much do we think that this is really the primary mechanism if it's doing the same thing to the G0s, which they don't show for panel B? Right. So I think that the idea is that if you were to have a panel B where you express G0, the degree of thallium flux increase upon expression of G0 might not be as high as it is for the G1, and that you're blunting that massive increase with the drug, and that with G0, you might not reach a toxic enough level of that thallium flux that you see injury to the cells and, and in theory, disease progression. I don't know. I think it. I think the fact that it's binding directly to the protein and the fact that it's inhibiting thallium flux, that makes, to me, a pretty good argument that it's happening, but I can hear that it would be nice to have even more detailed biochemical and structural information. And and that's, for me, that's something I really try to spend most of my time doing. I I do similar kinds of thallium flux assays and trying to work on structural stuff here as well. It's important because it's a nuanced situation. So when you think about a channel, it could be something that's directly blocking the pore. It could be something that's binding to the channel or one of the channel subunits allosterically and just, you know, creating some sort of induction of confirmational change. Exactly right. It could also be something secondary where, like Josh was saying, that you're having your effect at a molecule that is not specifically involved in channel formation, but by altering that molecule, the effect that that molecule would then have on channel formation. So it could be like a secondary effect. It could be far removed. So I think this is very valuable insight early on. And I think it makes a a really strong case for uh, this having, it confirms what we already know. It doesn't, uh, it, it, you know, says again, potassium is important here. The flux of it is important. And if it's directly interacting with the channel in some way to alter uh, flux, it probably is doing so in a general way in terms of like a confirmational change that's effective across any of the genotypes of the protein of the gene. Yeah, and, and I think just because we see blocking of potassium flux, it doesn't mean potassium is the only important thing. There might be other ions that are important moving through the, the channel as well, uh, but that's the one we have a really good readout for here. Huh, okay. And then finally, the panel D is looking at the mouse model that we'd spent some time on that after pre-treating the mice with an axoplan and then giving them a high dose of interferon at time zero. Mice that were not treated with an axoplan had lots of proteinuria, about 500 milligrams per gram here on this on this plot. And that mice that were treated pre-treated with an axoplan had 72 or 73% less proteinuria than those that were not treated. So showing that there is an in vivo effect of this small molecule that that makes sense with this in vitro kind of data that we had before. Sure, sure. One question for Jensen is, how is this UACR compared to other FSGS 
models you've worked with before? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you look back when the focus was more high-end than it was April 1, this friend, uh, I think leukemia virus uh-huh. uh, strain was considered highly susceptible to injury and therefore a better model to study glomerular disease than made, you know, like a black six or a C57, a C57 black six or, or, or what have you. Or, um, so the, the, the point is, is that this is, they do these studies in that strain. So that's the first uh, smart selection. My experience has been in any of the models that we study um, with rare sort of um, kind of uh, point mutations, you you have to layer effects, right? So even with our, our TRIP-C6 knock-in, you have to layer effects, you know, increase, you know, uh, blood pressure with angiotensin, you have to cut out a kidney, you know, to amplify the effect to get, you know, the, the tissue injury that that's sort of reflective of the human condition. So I think this is actually a really good model. It's been tested for other things that kind of have relevance to the general phenotype that you're studying. And so I think this was the smartest selection, best choice uh, that they could have made. But mice are mice and they behave how they behave. So um, <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> um, I think this is probably as good as you're going to get right now with where the science is. Would you have wanted to see any other endpoint? We don't get a biopsy at the end of these, right? We don't have any, we don't get to look at the pathology, the histology. Was that, I, I kind of expected that. Uh, what's the thought there? Well, one thing from looking at the mouse April 1 literature is if this is the back transgenic that I think it is, where it has the whole gene plopped in, the interferon induction is somewhat temporary, like it lasts for some time, but it's not long enough to see the fibrotic changes or the amount of podocyte effacement that you can quantify on EM. Um, And there was a different paper from Ionis Pharmaceuticals and JCI Insight, where they also did not have histology just because the proteinuria was very temporary. Okay. We, we, come, we come back to the problem is that only primates express ApoL1 and our mouse models yeah. are just, they're not great, is as, as what, as what it sounds like. And I, I think we're seeing data that's suggestive of an effect here and then jumping to people is actually not a crazy idea because the best model system to study ApoL1-associated kidney disease are people who have ApoL1-associated kidney disease. That seems like a good segue. Is there anything else we want to talk about about the animal models <laughs> and, the, and the cell models? I feel like we went deep on, on mouse and cell here. I'm, I'm happy to talk more. I just don't want to. I'm not. I, I mean, if we can move on, I think we should. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think the conclusion is that we've got we've got a cell model that's not a podocyte, which is what we think is the target cell, and we've got a, ma- a mouse model which doesn't cause at least long of what it sounds like long lasting diseases. Not a great model of the actual phenotype in humans, and so maybe this is the best we get. Which is the state of the art in this field because we're stuck studying a primate gene in mice, which sounds hard. <laughs> and you're not, you guys haven't started gorilla or baboon studies yet, Josh? Uh, no. Uh, yeah, no. That, that's its own super tricky my field that we have, we are not going down. So no one should stand outside my, our lab and protest. So I think, like you said, I think that's a good probably segue into the human study. And so uh, we'll get into the methods of that if everyone's okay. So just as a reminder, this was a phase 2A trial. So again, we're looking at does this reduce proteinuria in patients? And is it worth continuing to study the effect of this drug in patients? So this trial was conducted across 12 sites in France, the United Kingdom, and the United States. It was a two-part single group, open label phase 2A study, and it was sponsored by Vertex Pharmaceuticals 
pharmaceuticals, and they're the makers of anexaplin. So for this study, they enrolled adults aged 18 to 65. Your weight had to be more than 50 kilograms and a BMI of 18 to 40. You'd have biopsy-proven FSGS, and that had to be confirmed by an independent external expert. And additionally, you had to have two high-risk ApoL1 variants, and you could either be homozygous for G1, homozygous for G2, or a compound heterozygote with one G1 allele and one G2 allele. And the genotyping for this was done via an assay that was developed by Vertex and LabCorp. So the patients also needed to have nephrotic range proteinuria, which the authors defined as a urinary protein to creatinine ratio of 2.7, and this is in grams per grams, or less, but less than 10, or subnephrotic range proteinuria, which was a urinary protein to creatinine ratio of at least 0.7 and less than 2.7. And so these were all determined on first morning urine voids. They did three measurements on three separate days, all within the span of one week uh, in the screening period, and then the average had to meet those criteria. Uh, all the patients had to have an EGFR of at least 27, and this was based on the 2009 CKD epi equation. So just as a reminder, that did include the race coefficient. If you had an EGFR of 27 to 40, you also had to have less than 50% tubulointerstitial fibrosis. Or if it was not quantified, then it had to be described as non-mild or moderate on the kidney biopsy. All participants had to be on and continuing stable doses of things that are considered standard of care. Can, can, we, go, can, we, go, can we go back to the, can you go back to the pathology requirement? So yeah. they did not want severe. They did not want severe tubulointerstitial fibrosis. The idea is that there should still be functional kidney that you can save with this drug. And so it was so less if you were than totally 50, scarred over. If it was quantified, it was less than 50%. Yeah, quantified of less it, than 50%. And if, it was and, a, then, and if it was just a, what was the other, if it was not quantified? If it was just kind of described, then it had to be none, mild, or moderate. None, mild, or moderate. So anything but severe. Yeah. Moderate, anything but severe, that, exactly. Right. Anything but severe is fine. Okay. Thank you. Um, so all the participants in this trial had to be on and continue taking stable doses of what we consider standard of care medications for FSGS from 28 days prior to anaxaplin and then through the follow-up, which was considered through the week 13 visit. And then these standard of care medications, they're really what we think of in general in terms of our management of FSGS. So they included glucocorticoids, but you couldn't be on, for example, pulse dose for a flare. So you had to be on prednisone 10 milligrams or fewer per day or the equivalent. Oh. You okay. had to be on, <laughs> you had to, you could be on immunosuppressive medications like mycophenolate, tacro, or cyclosporin, um, and then our uh, RAS inhibitors. But a stable dose of those. Stable dose of those, exactly. And that had to be for 28 days prior and then through uh, week 13. And then in terms of exclusion criteria, some of them were a little bit vague, but they actually did have some interesting ones. So we'll go into those. So one was that they couldn't have any conditions that the investigators thought might confound the results or cause additional risk. And so some things that were included in this, but it, it really could be anything that the investigators determined, but include solid organ or bone marrow transplants, significant infections, liver disease, cancer, except for some skin cancers, um, alcohol or drug abuse, issues that might affect drug absorption, um, and then a stroke or MI within the previous six months. The participants hey, about also- why, What's the story with the stroke or MIs? We think this drug might be problematic in that population for some reason. I actually wasn't sure what the reason for the stroke or MI within the previous six months was. I don't know if anybody else is aware of that. All the other ones kind of made sense to me, but the stroke yeah. or MI, I'm not really sure about. What about heart failure or arrhythmia? 
So the heart, heart failure was not a specific uh, exclusion criteria, but certain arrhythmias were. Um, and so we'll okay. get into that as well. But heart failure in and of itself was not an exclusion criteria in this. And that's probably because the drugs that they would have been treated for, for to manage the arrhythmia, could have been complicating to the mechanism, you think? Or? You know, I thought a lot about that. And I don't know kind of what anybody else thinks. But here's my thinking, is that we see, at least in these kind of preclinical studies, right, that in the development of this drug, that we think at least that this drug results in potassium ion blocks blocks potassium ion influx. And so I think they wanted to exclude certain things. Wouldn't the efflux, wouldn't the potassium leave leave the cell? Yes. Sorry, blocks potassium efflux. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we we know from the preclinical trials or that the preclinical development or think from the preclinical development that it blocks potassium ion efflux. And so a lot of the arrhythmias that they excluded were things like torsades or QT prolonging medications, where you can imagine that that might be an exacerbating factor or that this drug might actually be dangerous for those patients. So they didn't necessarily state that specifically, but just looking at this specific kind of uh, cardiac contraindications, my suspicion is that that's why, because they excluded torsades and any QT prolonging medications. They included they excluded people with a prolonged QT, I believe. And so I think that's probably the reason why. Yeah. The other thing I wonder about is that they don't know what effect this is going to have on cytochrome P450s and like degradation of other medicines that people are on. Um, so if you don't know, better to be safe and not mess with their therapeutic level of amiodarone or something. Okay. Okay. So in terms of other exclusion criteria, because there were quite a few, they could not have FSGS that occurred with the administration of known FSGS-inducing drugs. So lithium, interferon, bisphosphonates, and illicit drugs. They could not have an underlying kidney disease that resulted in FSGS. And specifically here, they kind of called out CACUT, um, so congenital anomalies, and then uh, or a history of nephrectomy. Patients couldn't have sickle cell disease. They couldn't have a genetic variant associated with FSGS that was not G1 or G2, and they could not have positive serology for HIV 1 or 2. The kidney disease on biopsy, so again, had to be FSGS, and you could not have another kidney disease found on the biopsy, and TIP variant FSGS was excluded. How'd they handle COVID? It should be another mm-hmm. disease associated with APOL1 mm-hmm. disease, and I presume this is during the time of COVID? I would presume it's during the time of COVID. I actually didn't see where they mentioned that specifically, but I would assume that that would have been one of those things that was excluded for the same reason that we see a lot yeah, of these things sure. excluded. Um, and I think that would probably fall under, even if they don't list it specifically, probably one of those conditions. When the that investigators, investigators would be like, uh-uh, you're out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They did mention a travel prohibition to areas where you think you uh, were likely to, there's a higher potential to get a trypanosomal infection. So it seems like they were thinking about things that could themselves oh, that's so drive interesting. This. Yeah. 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 We so don't that, want that to was. Remove your natural immunity to trypanosome infections <laughs> with our drug. Yeah. Not something I normally think about, but yeah, sure. Okay. You are. Yeah. So that was one of the other. superstar. We will not. Okay. Cool. Um, so that was one of the other exclusion criteria. So they had some lab abnormalities that they excluded, and most of them were kind of liver dysfunction markers. You couldn't be positive for hep B surface antigen or hepatitis C during the screening. You, again, couldn't have risk factors for torsades or be on any QT prolonging medicines or have clinically significant uh, EKG abnormalities, and that was determined by the investigator. You could not have a blood pressure greater than 160 over 100. Pretty standard, but they include uh, they excluded, excuse me, pregnant or nursing 
nursing women, people with reproductive potential that were not on contraception. And then as we talked about, the plan to travel somewhere where sleeping sickness is endemic. And that exclusion lasted from the screening period through one week after the last dose of anaxaplin. You couldn't have hypersensitivity to anaxaplin and then uh, and you could not be on immunosuppressants other than the ones that we talked about as kind of standard therapy. So other than mycophenolate, tacro, or cyclosporin. So those are our laundry list of exclusion criteria, although I think they make sense when we think about them um, and are completely appropriate, especially for kind of this phase in a clinical trial. And so now that we've kind of defined our inclusion and exclusion criteria, we should move on to what was done. So they split the participants up again into one of two groups. So you either had nephrotic or subnephrotic range proteinuria, and that was based on your screening proteinuria. And again, the nephrotic range was defined as 2.7 up to 10, and the subnephrotic was defined at 0.7 up to 2.7. So actually kind of a little bit different than what we may use clinically, although I think it was kind of accounting for a margin of error in the estimate. All the patients received anaxaplin for 13 weeks, and the dosing was 15 milligrams daily for the first two weeks, and then they stepped up to 45 for the 11 weeks following that. And they did a safety visit at 28 days after the last dose. Then all participants had the option to enroll in a Part B of the trial, which was looking at percent change in proteinuria for up to 12 weeks after that initial Part A was completed, so that initial 13 weeks. And then data collection was performed by the sponsor and the study group and data analysis was performed by the sponsor, which again is- So that extension, they were not on drug. The extension was not on drug. It was just to continue to monitor. Yes. Okay. And how often did they get the drug again? Was it daily? It was daily. So it was 15 milligrams daily for two weeks and then 45 milligrams daily for 11 weeks thereafter. Okay. So the investigators looked at percent change in urinary protein to creatinine ratio at week 13 compared to their baseline. And then they were also looking at safety and pharmacokinetics, adverse events, EKG changes, vital sign changes, clinically significant lab abnormalities. And they estimated that they'd need roughly 10 patients to have a precision of 0.294. So again, this is kind of unusual in terms of the things that we're talking about in terms of the design. That's what they estimated they would need to, to be able to estimate the geometric mean percent change from baseline urinary protein to creatinine ratio. And then in their primary efficacy analysis, they included people who had at least 80% adherence to the treatment, but then they also reported the results of an efficacy analysis that was of all patients regardless of adherence. And then again, similar to kind of the sc- similar to the screening, with respect to the urinary protein to creatinine ratio, they looked at the average of three first morning urines, and they had to be within a seven-day window, and then analyzed the percent change from baseline to week 13. And the safety analysis was done on all patients who received at least one dose of the drug. Okay. And is that what we got from the, the methods? That's what that's what we got. Is that is, is that enough for the methods? So there was no protocol biopsy at the beginning. There was no protocol biopsy at the end. They had to be a biopsy proven, but we don't know how long the biopsy could be have done before they entered the trial. Could have been done Correct. X number of months or years before. Correct. There years. was no protocol biopsy at the beginning no of the trial and then no protocol biopsy at the end. And we did not look at uh, GFR. That was not one of the outcomes that we looked at. No. That's not an outcome they report. I don't know if they have that fair data, enough. but that's not fair, data they're fair, showing fair enough, here. But they're not, using but not one of their proteinuria as a say, surrogate Not outcome. even a secondary outcome. It's a proteinuria study. Correct. Okay. Josh, here's with some results. Unless oh, anybody, oh, anybody have any comments on the quality of the protocol for this phase 2A trial? You know what? I think it's given that we critique these all the time. Yeah. Have lots of thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, Please. I, I think it's 
reasonable to be picky about who you bring into a phase 2A trial because you're worried about, number one, not harming these people who are volunteering to take your drug. And number two, getting a group of people who you think you can follow and see some kind of outcome change in. I don't think I have a problem with the list of exclusion criteria, although it does seem like it's a mile long. And I think the time course seems reasonable to see if this medicine has an effect. And I think the follow-on period is interesting too. They don't present that in the main text. They present that, I think, in the supplement. But the idea would be if this is some kind of hemodynamic effect, like a RAS inhibitor, it should work while you give it and should stop working when you take it away at a follow-up visit. And if this is changing the course of disease, then maybe the improvement you have in your surrogate outcome might last beyond the end of the trial and hopefully for, for longer. Okay. So I, I think our, our discussion of results then can kind of be a, a shorter one, if that's okay here. Hit us. I think table one, is a, table one is a description of the participants. And, and like AC had said, there's three that had nephrotic range proteinuria and 13 with subnephrotic range proteinuria. They're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s mostly. They are equally split between men and women. And they have a variety of genotypes, mostly G1, G1, or G1, G2. There's only one person who is a G2, G2 homozygote. To be fair, the G2 variant is the least common of the three variants. So it makes sense that that's the hardest one to, to get lots of people in. These people are normal American size with a BMI of 30. We have those those UPCs, uh, the 3.5-ish in the nephrotic range group and a 1.7-ish in the subnephrotic group. And they have GFRs in the mid in the low 50s. If we look at standard of care medicines, almost all of these patients are either on an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker. So it is eight plus seven is 15 out of the 16 patients are taking one of those two medicines. And that makes sense. That's really our standard of care for proteinuric kidney disease. And only a small number of these patients, about a quarter, four of them, are on immunosuppressant therapy before, during, and after the trial. And I think that kind of goes along with our sense of how we take care of folks with FSGS as well. And a lot of people were not using immunosuppressant therapy um, if we don't think of them as very high risk of progression. Or they've gone through a period of immunosuppressant therapy and they've already completed that before the trial starts. So table two is looking at, is looks at the results of the trial. And I think the headline here is that we see proteinuria reduction in both groups, the nephrotic range proteinuria and the subnephrotic range proteinuria groups, about 50% decrease in proteinuria in all comers from week one to week 13. Figure two shows this broken down by participant. And this is one of the cool things about a phase two trial is you really can see each individual person's results as opposed to a giant mishmash of all of them together. And they show here the percent change in proteinuria of people who took at least 80% of the anaxiplin doses. 12 out of 13 people show a reduction in proteinuria only one shows an increase in proteinuria from week one to week 13. Amount of proteinuria goes down the longer you're on this medicine. Week one, week two, week three, week five, week nine, and week 13 study visits. Which again, if we think this medicine is doing something to change the progression of this disease, makes sense that it is continuing to work the longer you stay on. Table three is just looking at adverse events. Again, a really important part of a, of a early phase clinical trial. And on the whole, the drug seems to be pretty well tolerated. There are half the people say they have a, it looks like they've classified half the events as mild and half as moderate of adverse events. And most of those are things that we see commonly in, in people in general, headaches, back pain, nausea. 
without a control group, it's hard to say that these are really due to drug or just due to watching a group of people for three months and seeing what news it. I mean, how freaked out would you be? You're like, you're the first human being ever to eat I'm this I'm taking pill. new strutty drugs. You're like, I've yeah. got a headache. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think to, to look at the rates of adverse effect associated with this drug, we really do need a placebo control. Yeah. But I think at least nothing so scary that we couldn't imagine going forward this trial here. There's one person who had a DVT uh, that sounds like it was quite serious, but it sounds like that was thought to be unrelated to the medicine administration. Again, hard to tell if that's really unrelated or not until we have a bigger data set than 13 people. Nobody with severe and nobody with life-threatening. That's pretty good. I think so too. Those are those are kind of showstoppers, and we don't see those. 50% burden reduction with low rates of side effect mean that the drug really has hit its endpoints for this phase two trial and can go on to enrolling in a bigger phase three trial. Why no dose titration? Dark seems pretty safe. Let's double it down. Let's go to 90 Double it from 45 to go to crazy higher. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if other folks have thoughts there. I don't know. I mean, they do mention in the supplement that they that they consented everyone for monitoring of different metabolite levels. So I'm sure they have that data. Yeah, I'm not sure. It'd be and, really, it'd be really interesting if we could peek behind the curtain. To yeah, see that's how the, all other, the pharmacokinetics were determined. This is a phase two trial. There was a phase one trial, apparently not published. And usually, in phase one is where we do dose, where they will experiment yeah. with doses, right? Yeah. We don't see that. Interesting. Yeah, and I guess FDA approval came with this study. My understanding. There's no FDA approval here. They got to do phase three, and we are our. our Research Center is enrolling people in the phase three trial right now. We are getting oh. people on drug. I thought it had some positive FDA. I mean, not, it's not fully but some sort of expedited approval or was there a special condition? The Anaxaplan medicine has been granted breakthrough therapy designation by the FDA. I think that lets them get into the phase three trial a little quicker, but I don't think it's it makes it available for anyone else to prescribe outside of a trial. And it will allow right. them to get approval without a hard outcome. They will be able to get approval based on proteinuria. Based on proteinuria, which, correct. Got it, got it, got it. Which okay. is it? Which is which it, is something something? Yeah, which is something that we saw evidence of here. The last result I wanted to talk about was looking at people as they went off the treatment. Uh-huh. And this is data that's hidden in figure S6 of the supplement. S6, okay. Um, and so at four, eight, and 12 weeks after discontinuation of the anaxaplan, the participants who agreed to continue having their urine monitored continued to have a lower level of proteinuria than they did at baseline by about 30% or so, suggesting that this has some longer acting effect on the course of disease beyond just a hemodynamic effect that we might expect with an ACE inhibitor or an SGLT2 inhibitor over this period of time. I'm curious to hear people's thoughts on why you think that is. I mean, I understand that we think it's more than just a hemodynamic effect, right? And we know kind of why we think it works for maybe some of the preclinical development of this drug. But if it's blocking this ion movement through a pore and then you're withdrawing the drug, but you still have this kind of stimulus for, you know, kidney injury. Why do we think that there's this kind of long-term effect? Do we think that's just like the, it, it really is just that long lasting? Do we think that maybe that gives things some time to calm down and maybe you're not having that same stimulus after withdrawal? Like, 
What do, what do people think is going on there? My glorified imagination, I, 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 I go back to this whole idea of what is the molecule doing in its interaction with the channel. So it could be a covalent bond, which oh. results in oh. targeting it for destruction. And so you might have a lower level of APOL1 uh, after that length of treatment uninterrupted. And by virtue of that, obviously there there could be at least a time frame where there could be some healing going on, but it may just reset the baseline such that if you were to look out maybe 24 months or, or 24 weeks rather, or, or a full year, you may start to see things drift back to where they were in these patients. But I, I wonder, it just, it, it, it's all about the, the way the molecule is doing its, its business. Uh, I think that's maybe part of it. Yeah, because I think it, it seems like it's certainly more than just in the moment kind of, you know, blocking that channel or, or inhibiting that, you know, influx or efflux of ions. It seems like it has to be doing something more than that for this effect to be sustained. Yeah. I mean, unless it's like permanently stuck on that protein. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dr. Uh, Olabisi also demonstrated that the, the potassium efflux uh, elicited a cascade or activated a cascade of of uh, sort of pro-inflammatory signaling, if you think about the MAP kinase pathway, the junk MAP kinase pathway. And if you if you quiet that down, you are having transcriptional effects that kind of can endure. So I don't think any of these things are happening. I don't think all of these things are just sort of acute changes. I think some of these are, in, are kind of connected to longer term events in the cell that uh, we just don't really still have a full handle on. Yeah, I think the idea of quieting down inflammation in the podocyte sounds like a really smart idea here. I think Opie's work looking at at the the JNK pathway, I think uh, Catalan Sistak's work looking at uh, NLRP3 inflammasome pathways, like there are lots of different ways where blocking this channel activity could lead to decreased inflammation and decreased cell injury over time. Makes sense, but it would be really nice to have that data with the small molecule, which which we just we're, we're imagining the data. We just don't have it. <laughs> and, and speaking of data, there was uh, figure S seven does show the GFR over the time of the trial, and there's no change in the GFR. It's flat throughout the whole trial. EGFR. Thanks for reading the supplement, Joel. I'm I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be impressed on behalf of SWAT. <laughs> I got this. I got you. I got you. Okay. Any other results that we need to highlight? And th- was there any information about that one patient who was the outlier? The, the unresponder, the non-responder, took all the drugs. Not that I saw. Yeah. Again, my glorified <laughs> imagination, they, they made mention of one of the exclusion criteria was any genetic mutation that was known to cause FSGS in a person other than G1, G2, they excluded them. That's if it's known. So this could be a person that has sort of a non-described genetic mutation that blunts their capacity to respond to this therapy. It, it, you know, it could be something that's sort of of muted effect, but it collaborates with APOL1 to produce disease. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't enough to overcome whatever effect it's having in the background. That, that may be one sort of thing that's going on. But there was no other. I mean, they apparently evaluated this person other than the DVT and myoma. I think they mentioned uh, there just wasn't anything else to attribute it to. So what do you all think about the generalizability of this to patients you would see in clinic? Like, would you be able to capture APOL1 patients early enough or the subnephrotic range proteinuria? So one thing I think that's exciting about these, the very small data set of data that we're seeing is that these are patients who are at multiple different course spots in their disease course. 
They're not people who are coming in with raging crescentic GN that is aggressively happening now and we're going to blast them with immunosuppression now. There are folks who could have had FSGS for months or years before enrolling in this trial. And that seems like the people with FSGS that we see because we don't get to see them all at the beginning. We see them all at different courses of their illness. And it has an effect on pertinuria regardless of the stage of illness, which is exciting. I like the idea of this, or I'm hoping that the uh, that this drug can at least be considered in this way if it continues to perform at this level as a preemptive therapy for people who you know genotype in a way consistent uh, to, to the, the most severe increased risk um, and that also have lifestyles that you know may predispose them to um, the most exaggerated outcomes. Um, I would love to see as little as it is here, but certainly still in Africa, they're dealing with a uh, fair, fair amount of HIV infection. And I would imagine collapsing glomerulopathy is, is still a consequence, although we can't really, we have no sense for the, the, the prevalence. As a preventive therapy, it might be, uh, it might transform uh, health on the continent, I, I would I would hope. I think I've heard numbers, something like, and, and I have to find the source for these, otherwise we have to cut it from the podcast. But I've heard numbers, something like for every 15 to 20 people with a high-risk ABLE1 genotype, maybe one of them is going to go on to develop proteinuric kidney disease. And so I think it's really tempting to want to give preventative therapy to prevent that one person. But you're still talking about treating a lot of people who might never get proteinuric kidney disease. A number needed to treat a 20 is totally reasonable in lots of disease cases if this works as well as we would like it to work in this hypothetical world. It also means a lot of people taking drug. And I think we would need to see evidence of benefit as a, as a, prophylactic therapy before we we start giving a blank check on, on giving this medicine out to, to lots of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and our models have to be much better too. Yeah. I think it makes me excited about the next steps. I mean, I'm not ready to, you know, go out and start prescribing it yet, obviously. And I couldn't even if I were, but I, th- <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, I'd want to see, you know, the long-term kind of, are there any long-term GFR effects? Is this just a short-term reduction in proteinuria? And then, you know, I, but I do think that this is certainly a large population of patients that we could potentially consider this in if the later trials stay promising or show a benefit. Um, And then I think, you know, Jensen, to your point, I think there's other populations that we can consider. So would we ever consider this in someone, for example, who walks in the door and we know they have you know, high risk ApoL1 genotype, and they don't have kidney damage yet, but they do have a COVID infection. Would we consider it in, in patients that are particularly high risk in those cases? I don't think we're going to get the answers to that anytime soon, but I do think that those would be other populations that we would consider look that we could consider looking at eventually. I mean, not me, but you know, somebody. Yeah, let me ask you this kind of a more a practical question. We're getting genotypes on all of our black patients that have proteinuria, just what we're doing, standard policy. And you get somebody who's got a high-risk genotype and they got proteinuric renal disease. How excited or uh, forceful would you be to try to enroll them in a trial of this drug, a placebo-controlled trial of this drug? That's that's what's that's what's out there today. That's what you can do today is you can enroll these patients. I, I want to take a, a half step back and, and just make sure that we're thinking about this broadly enough. I think we hear people of recent African origin or ancestry and jump to thinking that's 
only Black or African-American people that we see in clinic. And in fact, it's a much bigger group of people than that. Folks who can trace their ancestry through Central America, through the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. basically anywhere the slave trade trafficked people through might not characterize themselves as Black or African-American. They might not look like that to society, but still could be people who carry a high-risk genotype. And so I think there's an argument here, number one, that we should be testing lots more people for genetic causes of glomerular disease, including APOL1-associated kidney disease. Okay, so you got someone who's got uh, two high-risk alleles. They got proteinuric kidney disease, and you have the option to uh, discuss the placebo-controlled trial in in the next split. Yeah, I think... If you have someone on all the standard stuff that we do, ACE inhibitor, and then thinking about if human expression makes sense for them or not, I think I would push reasonably hard. Well, let's, uh, let's, okay, let's go back. Let's go back. If you've got somebody who's got two high-risk alleles and they got FSGS on biopsy, how excited are you about giving them steroids? So uh, when we think about FSGS, we're used to thinking about it as primary, secondary, and genetic. And I think saying that genetic FSGS is an automatic exclusion to immunosuppressive therapy is probably not right. I think in APOL1-associated kidney disease, because we know interferon plays such an important role in the induction of APOL1 causing kidney damage, you could imagine that it might make sense to give some of these people immunosuppressive therapy. So I'm not sure that it should change someone's decision on immunosuppressive therapy or not. But I think thinking of it as a, should I add this on to immunosuppressive therapy or should I add this on to conservative therapy is a reasonable way to, to frame that. I, I don't know how other folks would, would take that apart. I would be, I would, one, one feature that would, I would, give serious consideration to is how old or young they are. I I would want to give a younger person best chance at uh, long-term use of their native kidney function as I can. And here's a a drug with some reasonable performance characteristics. If if they meet the criteria, I definitely would uh, encourage them. And, you know, to Josh's point, if any of this uh, looks like it's, uh, at least the the disease, the the diagnosis, if it looks like it's tracking along the family, you know, multiple people showing up with FSGS at an early age, my suspicion wouldn't necessarily be for G1, G2, or APOL1 mediated disease alone. It would be for something, um, you know, maybe in the rare genetic category, which is kind of mostly what I deal with. And so I would not rule out the impact of this therapy mitigating disease, even with another genetic injury present. And so, you know, that notwithstanding, I would would encourage not only the person I was seeing, but if I could track a family history, I would encourage them as well to at least be evaluated, consider, you know, maybe how the therapy could be helpful to them. Yeah, I agree. I think I would push pretty hard to at least consider it, like you mentioned, and kind of talk about what we do know, what we don't know, the potential risks and benefits. Obviously, I mean, we're going to have that that discussion with any any patient that we're considering consenting for a clinical trial or discussing this with. But I think the bottom line is it, it, it all kind of circles back to why are we even discussing such an unusual paper on Freely Filter today in the, in the first place? And the reason that we're doing this is because at least as of right now, this is what we have. This is our shot, right? And, and hopefully there's more things in the pipeline and hopefully there's other things that come through. But right now, this is what we have in addition to kind of our standard of care that we've discussed. But in terms of able one specific therapy. We don't know if this is going to work. We don't know what the phase three data is going to be, but this is 
this is what we have to start with and what we have to go with. And so I think I would be pretty upfront about that at least and kind of, again, discuss the risks and the benefits, but push pretty hard for, for that reason. One of my hopes from the study and the trials that will be forthcoming is that it will change how we practice outpatient nephrology and have more of an emphasis on genetic screening, regardless of how a patient self-identifies, but that everyone with proteinuric kidney disease gets tested for an FSGS panel or just a proteinuric kidney disease genetic screening panel where ApoL1 is included. And I think that if we're able to change practice on that level, regardless of you know how well this drug performs in the larger population, I think that's something that could be practice changing it's a little early to say that now, but in order to give the drug, you have to have the genotype. And then how do we actually genotype people fairly and making sure that we're not introducing biases into who we're genotyping, et cetera. It's going to, we're going to have to come up with a more generalized model for how we approach genetic screening in adult nephrology clinic. I think the pediatric people have this a little bit better <laughs> formulated than we do. But on the adult side, especially out in the community, we don't have it all figured out and access is going to be a problem unless we have it more standardized. I'll say that for folks who are practicing, who see people who they think might have APOL1-associated kidney disease and don't have easy access to genetic testing, I think Arcana is running a, a free program to test people for APOL1 genotype. And so folks can do that independent of the clinical trial that Vertex is running, they would also genetically test folks before enrolling in the clinical trial. But if you just want that information for your patient, for your decision-making, going through one of those free programs for genetic testing is also an option. And is that just for APOL1 or is that the full FSG? That's just for APOL1. Doing a more complete genetic workup is one of those other commercially available tests. The one we use the most is, is the Natera panel, but I don't, I'm don't. i sure there are other ones out there. You know, for from my uh, diversity, equity, inclusion lens, how this is handled from the trial to the release of information, uh, genetic data, and sort of patient performance data in the trial to how it's marketed and made available to the affected community, um, I think is so important. All aspects are done well. I think that would be at least a first demonstration of how valuable it is for African-Americans and other minority groups to participate in clinical trials. Uh, particularly that are directed at diseases that are, are specific to their experience. And so hopefully this will all be done in a way that's um, palatable and understandable, and physicians will be able to take hold of the information quickly and convey it to patients with confidence so that uh, they can feel involved in the decision-making and, and served by the, by the community that's um, working to move this therapy forward. It, it's, I think it's a, a real opportunity to make the case for why participation is so important. I, I think it's exciting to see precision medicine kind of come to nephrology. Uh, and I think from an equity perspective, it's especially exciting to see precision medicine come to a kidney disease that is mostly a disease of minority communities that have been so heavily impacted by kidney disease. You know, it, other fields have molecularly targeted therapies and have been using them forever. Tyrosine kinase inhibitors have been a cornerstone of ONC for, for 20 plus years, but this is new for us. And I think thinking about genetic testing, thinking about who would benefit from this therapy and thinking about how we make sure it's equitably available is really important going forward. Any other final thoughts? Exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. 
Pretty exciting. Okay, Josh, uh, time for our uh, tubular secretions. You got a tubular secretion for us? I'm sure. So I I am a podcast listener and participant, and the new podcast from the makers of This American Life in Serial called The Retrievals is outstanding. I don't know if folks have started to listen to that or not. Um, It's So far, they've released three episodes. They're going to release a fourth really soon telling the story of women who were being seen at Yale's fertility clinic and the diversion of opioids by a nurse who was addicted to opioids from that clinic. Nurse was taking them at the fentanyl home, giving herself the fentanyl, and then refilling the syringes with saline. And so women were having these procedures without without analgesia. uh, And that their pain was really treated as not real or or not valid uh, is really concerning. And I think touches on a, a lot of complicated issues of, of gender equity, of how we how seriously we take w- women's complaints and concerns in medicine. And then also how seriously we have institutions that have good policies in place to help make sure that individuals struggles with addiction or illness don't impact other people. I think it seems really clear so far from the story, and and I don't know what happens next in in the podcast, that there wasn't a good policy in place to ensure that this didn't happen and that we should all be able to make new policies to figure out ways to, to have stronger institutional protections against individual bad actors. Because uh, telling people to not be individual bad actors is not an answer. So the storytelling is, is fantastic. It's a gripping, terrifying story. Uh, but I think folks, it's definitely worth it. Did lesson. they break the story in this podcast or had it already been a news story before the podcast came out? Story had already been a news story, but they really dug in deeper here. How long ago did the story break? Because I just heard about it just last week when the podcast came out. Yeah, either a year or two ago. I think the podcast was designed to to tell the story in more detail. And the the last thing that's really engaging about the story is that the, the women who are telling their stories in the podcast um, have very interesting professional backgrounds, including some folks who are criminal defense attorneys, some folks who are PhD level researchers in addiction medicine, folks who have a background in restorative justice. And so seeing how they reconcile their own experience with their professional understanding of these really complicated issues is also is also fascinating, really gripping. Huh. That's a that's a great one. That's a great one. Uh, Jenny, do you have a tubular secretion for us? Well, certainly not something as deep and thought provoking as what it's it's always Josh it's it's difficult, difficult to go after <laughs> after Josh's every time. I endorsed Little League Baseball last okay. podcast for the record. <laughs> that's true. He did do that. He was a pro Little League Baseball. Gosh. And America and apple pie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess my tubular secretion is actually related to tubules. Um, as some of you may know, I am training for the Chicago Marathon uh, right now, and I'm running on behalf of the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois. And so in all of my training, and it's summertime, thinking about hydration and my hydration strategy through training has been on the forefront of my mind. And I'll just say that I'm a very nerdy runner and have been uh, paying exquisite attention to the color of my urine <laughs> these past months. And I think I ended up diagnosing myself with maybe a mild case of hypo- uh, ADH-mediated hyponatremia. <laughs> 
is I was just like, oh, you know, I have kind of a headache. I feel a little bit nauseous and my urine is uh, like 100, there's like zero yellow in it. And it was, I was like, all right, I may have been hyponatremic for a little part of my run, but that was me being nerdy and probably freaking myself out unnecessarily. But luckily no signs of rhabdo so far. So being a nephrologist training for a marathon has been an interesting experience. So where, so any of you, have you ever run a marathon before or run Chicago before? I tried, I attempted Big Sur in the spring, but was taken out by a tibial injury. Oh. And this was me like not thinking about my health in broader terms. Apparently I was quite vitamin D deficient. Oh and my. And wasn't, wasn't having enough recovery time. So the impact on my bones ended up leading to a very early stress fracture. And so, but everything was not refundable. So, and I was running, <laughs> I was running with my partner and I was like, well, I'll show up to the start line and see what happens. And then I had to tap out at mile 11. Uh, just, it was, I was severely undertrained and there were hills. They did not consider it hills, but <laughs> it was not nothing like flat. Chicago. For someone who trains in Chicago, they were definitely hills. I, I've, <laughs> I've heard that people's only way to train for hills is going back and forth over the North Avenue bridge. Like 20 yeah. times is the only hill you're able to get for With like that. So, some people do parking garages, like ramps. That's, what I, did. That's what I did for New York was parking garages. That wasn't like a true training season. And that was also training during the winter. But yeah, so, it, so it's, it's interesting. So we'll see what happens. But Chicago is much more forgiving. The race is much more forgiving. Mm-hmm. So I should, regardless of what happens to my legs during the race, I should be able to hobble over the finish line and still get a medal and represent NKF regardless. And Jenny, are you fundraising that we can put a link to your fundraising stuff in show notes? Sure. And it's on my Twitter profile at Jenny J. Lynn. But yeah, but there are other people on Team Kidney who need to hit their goals as well. But thankfully, I've reached my goal. But you are every, but I will never turn away a donation in the name of kidney disease. But I might reshuttle it to some of the other Team Kidney people who need to hit their mark. And is, is, is Sue also running the marathon? She's no, not. She got her... No, I think she's far too busy to train. <laughs> and how far are you? And what's your long this week? What's your long run going to be? This coming week, it's going to be basically a half marathon. So Have you run a half before? Yes, I've run two halves before, so that's been fine. It's a bad name because it's not half of a marathon, even though it's half the distance. It is nowhere close to half the work. <laughs> No, it's not. I was like, I was like, I don't know if I could do another full after this. And it's just the time commitment is unbelievable. And I'm waking up at 4.30 a.m. to be able to get these runs in. And But yeah, but it's an experience. And I do hope that there are more kidney-related charity runs that we can all participate in. I know that fitness was a cornerstone of uh, nephrology bonding over social media with the 850 challenge and everything. So I hope that there are more opportunities forthcoming. If I can piggyback off of Jenny's uh, tubular secretion, I am running a much less impressive race in Falmouth, uh, Massachusetts, and I'm fundraising for New England Donor Services, which is the organ procurement organization for New England. Um, So I will do what Jenny is doing and put a link to, to my fundraising link. Uh, in my Twitter profile at Jay Waits. And unlike Jenny, I've not hit my fundraising goal yet. So if people <laughs> want to give me money, please give me money. Yes. So, yeah. Pray for my hyponatremia or give me thoughts and prayers and then donate to Josh. <laughs>
Jensen, you got a tubular secretion? Yeah, I, you know, I guess uh, in the spirit of medicine, not kidney uh, necessarily, I rediscovered one of my heroes this month, Dr. Vivian Thomas of uh, the uh, Blaylock Thomas Taussig shunt for um, uh, Tetralogy of Fallot. And uh, the reason why I kind of came back to it is uh, I just happened to be, my mother lives in Maryland and I, in Baltimore, and I just happened to be scrolling through some some uh, local news kind of clips from, from Baltimore and sort of found my way to, to Vivian Thomas. And, um, you know, it, it just, it reawakened the admiration that I have for him. I remember in medical school, just being really um, captivated by his story. And I was, I had proximity because I was in Baltimore and I could have done probably some, some, uh, some things to kind of unearth more about him then, but I was so busy with other things in my life. I just didn't. Now that I have a little bit more time and I have kids that I'd like to sort of pass stories along to, I think uh, it's a particularly motivating story. And, um, you know, to, to think about um, the obstacles. Can you, can you that... summarize the story shortly? Because I'm not familiar with the story. Oh, 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 sorry. Yeah. So Vivian Thomas was um, so back in the 1920s. Uh, he was he was born and uh, kind of came into carpentry in his teenage years under the influence of his father. Um, developed a lot of skill with his hands. Uh, wanted to be uh, a medical professional, but, um, you know, in the depression era, all the money he had saved from his carpentry work over whatever period of time got lost in the crash. And so he more or less had to rely on, um, kind of intern apprenticeships to, to, to get proximity to medicine. He came in contact early with, um, a young Dr. Blaylock down in, uh, Tennessee at Vanderbilt and was recruited to his lab. He became the director of that lab and initially did a lot of work with him on how to treat shock. And then Dr. Blaylock got recruited to Hopkins. Vivian went with him. Dr. Thomas went with him. And um, they were looking for new challenges to conquer. And so they met up with uh, Dr. Tausig, who was a pediatric cardiologist, if you could call it that, uh, back in those days before uh, cardiothoracic surgery really had its its formal beginnings. And she presented them with the blue baby uh conundrum. Mm-hmm. The, the idea then was you can't operate on the heart. Um, there's no way you can do it. It'll be fatal. So what they did was uh, they did what we were discussing. They created a model. They reproduced uh, the blue baby um, syndrome in dogs. Anna, the dog, was the first dog to survive the surgery that Vivian Thomas pioneered. And um, they had a, a first child, I forget the, the last name, uh, but a, a really um, cute little girl that they saved with uh, actually Dr. Taussig's, I'm sorry, Dr. Blaylock's uh, first time doing the surgery uh, outside the lab. He had Vivian Thomas standing over his right shoulder, kind of coaching him through the procedure. And so um, it was it was a landmark study. It put Hopkins on the map. It started the field of cardiac surgery, um, as it's come to be known. He actually, with his uh, expertise as a, as a carpenter, developed a lot of the instrumentation that they would use in that surgery on that first little girl. Uh, because, you know, prior to that, people weren't used to dealing with vessels that small. And so they really had to generate, you know, clamps and forceps and all these different things just to be able to work in those small spaces on those tiny vessels. So anyway, he, he ended up never getting to go to medical school because um, he had worked with Dr. Blaylock for so long and just didn't really have the resources and uh, really found his passion in that in that work. So when that part of his dream sort of uh, left him, he rededicated his focus. Dr. Blaylock went on to, I think, Columbia. 
he stuck around uh, at Hopkins and uh, they gave him an honorary doctorate, doctorate of laws, not an MD because they couldn't uh, do that for a person that had not had the formal training. But it's, it's you know, it's just when you listen to it and you kind of hear about this guy with his um, his gentle manner and very deliberate and thoughtful uh, way of teaching and training others when he himself could not achieve uh to the heights that he he had had hoped uh it, it's it's just an amazing personal story and so i i rediscovered him and that's that's uh, i guess what i would offer excellent to this christian hey see what he got jenny you thought you had it hard i don't know i don't know how to how to follow that at all <laughs> um, um so my tubular secretion is a lot less cool. But about a week and a half ago, just something that was really fun and a first time thing for me was I was actually able to go to Washington, D.C. with a bunch of other mostly pediatric nephrologists, but some nephrologists as well, people from industry and the FDA. Um, and this was a fun thing because I get to kind of wear my med peds hat where we see all these trials in adults and we get to think about kind of how we can advance care for kids. So it was um, a conference or a meeting basically about how to push forward trials for SGLT2 inhibitors in pediatrics, which right now are not approved in pediatrics, but I think all of us feel like they would really benefit them because the data is so overwhelming in adults. So like kids, it was small but mighty a small but mighty group of people, I think, trying to kind of <laughs> push forward and really advocate for kids. And it was really cool even to see the people from the FDA there um, kind of talk about how we're shifting this paradigm from protecting kids from clinical trials to advancing care for kids through clinical trials. Um, and again, kind of getting to wear one hat where I know all this data in adults and see it in practice all the time and have in residency and have in fellowship and how much these things help and how can we take this and carry this over to be able to benefit children as well. And then after that, I just, you know, got to spend a week with all of my nieces and nephews who I haven't seen in like six years. So that was a really wonderful way to cap off that week and just get some excellent work-life balance in there as well. I don't know, going to defend the nation's children in Washington, D.C. doesn't sound like a bad tubular secretion at all. That's pretty, that's pretty outstanding. <laughs> Not at all. Representing, representing at the FDA, strong work there. That's awesome. How'd you, how'd you get on that group? They had, were there, were you, uh, how many fellows were in that group? How many in that room I was the only fellow, which they any, actually- Any any residents? No. And they any actually medical called students? me out as the only fellow. No, I was the youngest person there. You were the youngest there, person there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, real slouch there. Stepping <laughs> up, okay, see? Jeez, oh, Pete. How'd you get- No, how'd, how'd they pick you? Interestingly, my my PI recommended, recommended me to go. So I am- grateful for him for that. He knows it's a big interest of mine. Um, and so he felt like this would kind of be right up my alley. It's something I've given talks to to my division about and talked about the data in adults and, and what can we do in kids and how can we look at this. And so I think he knew it was something that I was personally very interested in um, and thought that this would be a, a good fit for something for me to do. Okay. That's outstanding. My tubular secretion is I am also going to ask for money. We'll make it the triumphant. Okay. So- <laughs> NEFJC is doing its fall fundraiser. Now it's not fall, but uh, is last it be year fall when this episode actually comes out. Oh my gosh, it may be. But uh, <laughs> but uh, NEFJC hit a major milestone last year as we shed all of our industry support. We were fully supported by people who use the site and get information from our post publication peer review, and that was a major milestone for us. We don't intend to go back to the industry 
trough. We were very careful about who we got money from. We didn't get from any pharmaceutical companies, but that did leave a bit of a loophole with um, diagnostic companies and um, dialysis companies that did that were supportive in our early years. But we have shed that. We no longer get any money from those groups. And hopefully we'll be able to continue doing this. We run a tight ship. It doesn't cost a lot of money for us to run FJC, but it doesn't cost no money to run FJC. And so we are asking for listeners to the podcast, people that go to the NFJC chats, people that just read the summaries, people that borrow our resources for their slide presentations, which we love for people to do, you know, kind of give back, right? You know, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that we that uh, the NFJC organization through the NSMC has trained dozens and dozens of visual abstract authors. And now just about any article that you read in nephrology, kind of regardless of the journal that you're reading from, is going to have really good visual support. And we see it all over the place. Uh, some of it credited, some of it not credited. I'm looking at UAJKD, but uh, those I know, <laughs> I know the illustrators and those illustrators are our people, people that we've trained. And, and I think that, you know, we're, we're happy to give to the community and we're happy not to charge for it. And that's something that we don't do. We don't have, there's no, there's no lectures that we give that are behind a paywall. There's no resources that are behind a paywall. Everything we do is free, open access. And, um, and, uh, we'd like, we'd like your support to continue to do that. You know, uh, people all over the world use NFJC's resources and, uh, it's hard to set a price for those things that, uh, people all over the world can afford. And so our price is zero. Uh, but we, we would like people to step up right now. Uh, we're going to have, we're going to have the support levels at, uh, 500, 200, 100, and probably $50 also. I have not quite put the website together. I'm counting on this to be in a couple of months before it comes out. But, <laughs> but I would, uh, I really would ask people uh, to dig deep and support an FJC. Like I said, we run a tight ship, but it's not; it doesn't cost nothing. And and if you're in the United States, all the do- all the donations are uh, tax deductible. We are a 503c uh, tax deductible organization. Thanks a lot. This has been great. This has been an important NFJC uh, freely filtered, though a weird one. It was a very different, a very different discussion. I enjoyed this, though. Thanks a lot, guys. 